Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about sex trafficking case studies. January is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and we want to educate ourselves. And to do that, we're honored to have with us once again Victim Specialist at the Denver Division of the FBI, Ann Dar. Ann Dar received her bachelor's degree from Illinois State University and two master's degrees in forensic psychology and counseling from Marymount University. Ann entered the FBI in 2008 and works as a victim specialist at Denver's Rocky Mountain Child Exploitation and Human Trafficking Task Force, combating domestic sex trafficking. She coordinates the Front Range Anti-Trafficking Coalition of Local, State, and Federal Law Enforcement, working together with non-governmental organizations to provide comprehensive victim-centered services to trafficking victims and trains law enforcement entities on a national level. She was awarded the Law Enforcement Victim Advocate of the Year in 2016 for her human trafficking cases, specifically the Brock Franklin case, which received the longest sentence in U.S. history for a human trafficker at 400 years of life. Anne has received acclaim in her field since that time and received the Medal of Excellence Award for Outstanding Service and Director's Award from U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. In her free time, Anne has traveled to all but three of the 50 states, and she is still going. You're going to get it at some point. Yes, no, at I believe some in point. you, Anne. Yes, I'm hoping maybe this year, next year, we'll see. We'll see. Well, thank you for joining <laughs> us again. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, so uh, yeah, let's talk about is these case studies. So uh, is there, uh, and we kind of want to give you kind of a free, uh, you know, uh, some freedom to, to address what would, what, where would you like to start? Is there a particular case that you feel really kind of crystallizes things? Oh, sure. So I think, as you mentioned, at the longest sentence in U.S. history, the 400 years to life, I think that, again, a it, it, it's very an excessive sentence, but very much deserved, especially with this particular person. And so would love to start there uh, to kind of Great. get things going. Yeah, that sounds so excellent. So uh, how, did, how did you get involved? What were what were what were some of the early stages of, of how, how things happened? Sure. And so I definitely want to start with a disclaimer when it comes to sex trafficking in general. I know that in general, sex trafficking, it's offensive. And so it may be triggering to folks out there. And some of the language and terminology and definitions used do not come from us at the FBI or law enforcement. These are language that is used uh, from being in the life, what they call it, or the game. And so with that, it's understanding that kind of underground world of um, sex trafficking. So I just wanted to start off with that. I also want to start off too with recognizing that all these case studies have been successfully adjudicated. And so with that, we can talk about them and really help those who are listening to understand and recognize uh, because of these cases, um, track what trafficking is. And thank you, you, Anne. And, and, um, I also want to say we're going to be relying on 
Anne's ethics that govern her field for what she can share rather than psychiatric ethics like patient confidentiality or the Goldwater rule. As she said, these are adjudicated um, uh, cases that she has received clearance to be able to share with us. And we're very grateful for to you and for, you know, taking those pains to to be able to do that. Um, We also want to recognize that there is glamour and intrigue, uh, kind of like with our Tatiana Tarasov episode. This is a true crime kind of thing. And we're going to do our best to be thoughtful about um, conveying this information in a way that is helpful for preventing future suffering and that's respectful to victims and survivors. Um, and if you have ideas for how we can handle um, topics like these with intense gravitas in a, in a different way, um, feel free to email us. Aaron will share the email at the end of the episode. That's, that's all I got. Thank you for that. And I, and again, I want to definitely highlight that there are resources that will also be shared at the end. So again, feeling triggered or identifying somebody throughout this process that you may have a gut feeling about or thinking about a case or a patient that you came across, uh, there are are some resources that we're going to share there at the end. So thank you. Um, So just kicking it off, I think that one of the things before I start into the actual case study is that thinking about uh, the dynamic of fending a process. How does this first start? How do they identify their first initial potential target? And this is something that was created from our behavioral analysis unit um, back at Quantico. We're really trying to hone in on how traffickers recruit and prevent disclosure when it comes to these cases. These cases, again, are discovered. Uh, They're not disclosed victims. They're not knocking on the FBI's door. So it's identifying those potential targets. And so I think what's really alarming to all of us is that it's our own kids in our own backyards that we see, you know, whether at school or um, coming through the emergency room of kids who are, you know, located via um, online social media platforms. That's a huge target for these traffickers. And so sometimes they're in foster care, group homes. And unfortunately, a lot of traffickers will actually position themselves down the road uh, from uh, these homes. So as soon as a kiddo goes AWOL or they run away because they're feeling triggered, again, adolescents, their brains aren't fully developed yet. And so that sense of impulsivity, especially when they're feeling triggered, they may run and the traffickers are there to intercept them. And that's where we see specifically here in Colorado, they'll actually move them to what we call the track or the blade or the area where they get turned out. So that's a a big piece of that. But a lot of it's that gathering of that information. They really hone in on those runaways, uh, those with uh, past, present, physical or sexual or emotional abuse. They have um, maybe a drug addiction, um, homelessness. They have a distressed family life. Um, They may be in poverty or fear or distress of that system. And then they exploit those vulnerabilities by promising the family home, uh, just acceptance or that better life. And from there, that's where they establish that power and control of um, that threats, the violence, you know, the indulgences, that love. 
and then forming that trauma bond or that Stockholm syndrome um, that we talked about. Can I also jump in and say, I, uh, in my work, I've also become aware of um, how traffickers may use other teenagers to recruit other teenagers. And so maybe someone like, for example, runs away from a group home, finds on the street, another teen who looks like them, who talks like them. And that teen says, Hey, I know someone who I think would like you and would want to be your boyfriend. Why don't you come with me and you can meet him sort of thing. I'm I've also become aware of that as well. We have a, a doctoral psychology um, trainee with us on the on the show tonight, kind of shadowing who who had worked in a, in a group home and mentioned that um, she's actually seen some of these things. And um, so, uh, credit to her also for for kind of bringing that into our awareness. Obviously, Anne's been aware of this. Um, is there a way that? Uh, someone like that can be recognized by group home employees and, and that the FBI can be alerted. Oh, if there's a trafficker down the street. Absolutely. We actually work really closely with our residential treatment centers. Uh, We go in and we actually provide trainings to them on recognizing human trafficking. And because a lot of times the victims may Um, have a plan in place that they are going to run. So it could be, you know, that they uh, had a peer recruit them. And so they've already set somebody up to where there's somebody waiting for them down the street. And so we see that a lot in juvenile detention centers where that sense of recruitment among peers um, is, is very, very high. So that's where it's really important that we train staff members to recognize that amongst the, the youth there. Okay. Um, if this is a, as, as good, a, a, a natural kind of turning point as any, I would love to hear about this case that you were mentioning, this kind of historic case that you've been, um, it sounds like really nationally lauded for, and that you won these awards for. Sure. I think that when it came to this case, this was a strong turning point for our task force because initially we were extremely reactive when recovering victims of human trafficking. And so we had just this at the very beginning of that year, which was 2015, we established a proactive response. And so we trained up all of our juvenile assessment centers and child welfare that created an identification tool to be able to recognize trafficking victims as they were coming through the juvenile assessment centers. The juvenile assessment centers are kind of hubs where uh, kiddos who are runaways or have warrants or have new charges are taken and they're given assessments. And so in this particular uh, case, we had a 16-year-old runaway. Uh, She had been on the run for about three months. And at the time, she was uh, in a vehicle that had just pulled out of a hotel. And there was a police officer that found the vehicle suspicious. They did a traffic stop. And on the traffic stop, he was trying to identify 
um, all the individuals in the vehicle. And she got pretty hostile. I didn't want to tell her real name. And so after some back and forth, he's like, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and take you to the juvenile assessment center. It was pretty apparent that she was a minor, uh, that she had been on the run. She had braces. And so with that, they took her to the juvenile assessment center as they were going through that indicator checklist, which again was more like a conversation like, hey, how long have you been on the run? How have you been surviving and going through the contents of her purse? Because a lot of times when they come in, they got to go through and do um, kind of that checkbox of what they have on them. They were finding uh, condiments. They were finding lubricant. They were finding hotel room keys. And they just kept asking and peppering her with questions on how she was surviving. And she got pretty teary. And she said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I am in fear of my safety and I need to get out of here because I have a pimp who's after me. So of course, hearing the word pimp, seeing all this evidence, they immediately called our task force and said, hey, Ann, you need to get down here right now. We have someone who is very much telling us what's going on with her. So uh, it just so happened that we raced down there and having that initial conversation, because it, it, a lot of it was that fear of law enforcement, like, oh, am I in trouble? You know, what, what's going to happen to me? Because a lot of times traffickers will instill fear of law enforcement, that they're in trouble, that they're going to get charges for what you know, being in that lifestyle. So immediately I asked her, Hey, when was the last time you ate anything? And she's like, Oh, it's been, been probably a few days. Uh, so I said, Hey, listen, let's go grab some McDonald's. Let's go back to our office. We can talk more about what you want to see happen, where you want to go. By that time I had already contacted her parents um, her mom specifically said, hey, we're in fear uh, because she's been affiliated with some uh, gang affiliations. And so we're worried about her coming here because she's got younger brothers and sisters. So go ahead and meet with her and then we can kind of come up with a plan on next steps for where she's going to go from here. So we had brought her back to our office and got her some food. We talked about next steps and essentially she agreed to get interviewed and then completely unraveled Pandora's box for us. And so we were uh, eventually um, were able to identify Brock Franklin and found out that he was a habitual offender. And what that means is he's a multi-felon. And he started his career by um, exploiting and pimping out a 15-year-old who had cerebral palsy. Uh, he was charged with that and had a felony on his record. He then was in prison for attempted murder, where he shot what we call a John or a trick or a sex buyer in the face. And so he had done prison time for that. And as soon as he got out, he moved um, basically his um, whole um, empire of what I can say to Colorado, where he set up shop. And, and how so, do you shoot someone in the face and then get out? He was charged with attempted murder. The person survived. And so he did a prison stint and then was able to get out. And wow. so, yeah, he's originally from Minnesota. And so that's where a lot of um, his practice was. If you're yep. just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking with victim specialists of the Denver Division of the FBI, Andar, 
We're talking about sex trafficking case studies and in particular, Brock Franklin. Go ahead, Anne. Yep. So he essentially moved his um, operation to Colorado, and that's where he began the recruitment process. And so with that, he would meet vulnerable victims, whether that be, for example, one of them specifically had uh, broken down on the side of the road. She had no gas. And so it's that whole kind of terminology of what we call finesse pimping or boyfriending in. It's that manipulation and grooming and kind of saying, hey, I'm going to save you. I'm going to help you. And so that's where he really gained the trust with this particular victim of saying, hey, I can rescue you and bring you in on my team. And hey, let's make some money together. So that's how one of the victims was recruited in. Um, When it came to our minor victim that we had encountered that evening, um, she was already being trafficked by another pimp. And so what Brock Franklin did is that he looked at escort websites and he wanted to see what was his competition. And so he would peruse a lot of the advertisements and then would contact that advertisement and basically offer a better deal or what he would call choosing up. And that terminology basically means, um, hey, I can bring you a better deal to choose up to me, which is I'm a better pimp. And I can provide you protection. I can maybe provide you a better cut of the money. I can provide you a better lifestyle. So that's how he would recruit the majority of his victims. Again, other ways that he recruited was he would go into um, clubs or nightclubs and really hone in on those who needed money, who had low self-esteem, low sense of self-worth. One of the victims actually... Um, was really trying to get rent paid and she had kids and she needed to provide for them. So he offered her, you know, this money, this, this deal to say, Hey, come work on my quote unquote team. And I can offer you a cut of the money. So he just essentially started gathering and recruiting all of these victims to make up what you call the stable. And the stable is somebody or is a group of victims that essentially work and um, have sex in exchange for the money. And all of the money gets funneled essentially back to him. And so that's how he was able to start kind of his empire. Now, Brock Franklin, he was the kind of pimp who would do threats to keep them in. He would um, really do a lot of shame where some of the victims, um, you know, if they didn't meet their quota, which a lot of the victims had to have a nightly quota, sometimes it's a thousand dollars. They didn't meet that nightly quota, then they would be punished. So with punishments, it could mean that they wouldn't eat or one of them specifically, um, if she didn't follow any of the rules, uh, she would, one of them, at one point, she was thrown out in the cold snow and had to stand outside um, in sub-zero temperatures. Um, another one uh, wouldn't get ready for a date fast enough because the way that it worked is all of them would get together. They would get ready for the night because essentially he's building a product, a product to sell for sex buyers to buy, right? It's that whole supply and demand. And so he'd want them to get ready. 
He would have them do their makeup, their hair, all of that. And he had a particular uh, way of how they wanted to look with their hair down. And so one of them pretty much said, nope, I don't want to do that. So he guided and directed another victim to go to the kitchen, uh, grab a pair of scissors, which they didn't have any. So she grabbed a knife and then in front of everybody, he cut off all of her hair. And so that just sends a message to all of the others that this is what's going to happen if you don't follow my rules. Um, another one he thought was overweight. He forced her to be on diet pills. So there was so much shame and guilt when it came to a lot of our victims in these cases. And so one of them actually was identified uh, through the emergency room where mm-hmm. she was in an elevator and she was like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. And he said, you know what? You're going to, you're going to do this. And she refused. And so he did what um, is called timber lining, where he had a pair of timber lines on and he stomped her so hard that she lost partial vision in one of her eyes. And so she had gone to the emergency room to seek treatment. And that's how we were able to identify her through those means. And so essentially over the course of time where we were able to, um, because of that first victim being identified uh, through the juvenile assessment center, we were able to get all the information to pursue uh, this investigation and essentially bring charges that were stacked on several victims that were identified uh, through the course of the case and through other victims. And because of his habitual offending, being a multi-time felon, um, we were able to get charges for all the victims, which essentially led to that 400-year-to-life sentence, which he very, very much deserved. And I'll tell you, I had one particular victim in that case who used tattoos as a means to kind of release some of the pain that she suffered. So she was very much tatted up. And having her tattoo, his release date on the back of her was so um, rewarding for her and empowering. Um, His release date actually says 8888. And so she tattooed that on her back because for her, that was a sense of empowerment to say he will never get out and hurt anyone else ever again. Wow. Wow. That's so horrifying of a story. And so that's why it's so important that, that, that you provide this information so that we can kind of understand what, okay. Now, when, if you look, when you look back at this case, were there places where the system failed the victims that were, were, where maybe clinical folks did not say something they didn't, they saw something, they didn't do anything or they ignored it or they thought it was their choice or they didn't want to pursue it. Or, did you see any breakdowns and like what, what could have caught him earlier? You know, I think that, again, a lot of it was distrust of systems. Um, And so I had some of the victims who tried to flee from him, but they didn't want to report. Family members attempted to report and they didn't want to, quote, snitch uh, because they were worried about consequences or threats to them, to their families, threats of violence. And so it's really difficult being in this world and reporting. And so that's where I go back to that whole world of discovery versus actually being disclosed. And so a lot of the victims 
after that first initial victim. And again, it was that building of that rapport, getting her basic needs met to be able to even get a little bit of the story. And I know I'm minimizing in the fact that it did take several times for us to do interviews, to be able to get several aspects of the story, to be able to then recognize additional victims and then go cold knock some of these additional victims to say, hey, listen, this is an investigation that we're pursuing. What he did to you is not okay. How can we work together to be able to um, make sure that he's held accountable for you? And so it was very difficult to be able to instill that trust and rapport with these victims to be able to disclose. So with that, that's how we were able to essentially be successful at the end of the day, because it takes a village to be able to work these cases. And so having that engagement with service providers were so essential in the treatment to be able to work through some of that Stockholm syndrome really, really helped at the end of the day to get them all to come together to be able to testify because these guys are so narcissistic and they're psychopaths. So they take it to trial. And so they want to see if they'll actually show up. And in this case, they all did. And which was a miracle in itself. However, it just, you know, really worked at the end of the day to be able to have that rapport with them, to be able to do that. I think that also just kind of um, brings to light a commonality between our fields, um, which is that the therapeutic alliance is, you know, essentially the most important thing in in existence. Um, a, A question I have is, Another area kind of along the lines of Aaron's question um, where I'm surprised that nothing came to light earlier. And I'm curious your thoughts on this is the idea of choosing up uh, the idea of switching from one pimp to another. I would imagine a huge gun battle at that point or, and I don't know much about the mechanics of where these young women and, and men are actually held and how they would be, how they would escape from one pimp to another. Um, how, what did that look like? And how did that not result in, you know, intense um, police scrutiny or something like that? So essentially choosing up means, again, you're choosing up to a better pimp. And so the way that our victim was able to escape her first one was actually kind of like the movies where she literally ran out of the hotel room down the back stairs out to the door and you know the the other pimp was chasing after them um unfortunately with choosing up there comes a price and so for her she had to make a quota of $3000 before she was able to get some of her basic needs met, join the stable or the other team and have the protection. So she had to work that $3,000 off first before she was able to then have that sense of protection and be on the team. And so that's where that choosing up kind of comes to fruition. And so again, I think it comes back to your question is, you know, when it comes to, you know, them not being recognized or a lot of them will, you know, are are feeling like they're in a deep, dark hole and they're so manipulated and groomed by these psychopaths that they feel like they can't go back. They, you know, this kiddo was on the run for three months from her family, you know? And so with that, it's, 
you know, feeling that sense of stigma that they're ashamed, that, you know, there's something wrong with them, that, you know, they can't go back and face that stigma with their family. So they feel like they have to stay in this lifestyle in this world. And so with that comes other consequences of being addicted to substance abuse and then essentially having PTSD and other diagnoses. And so you're dealing with a lot of that dual diagnosis when you're thinking about long-term care and the, and the after effects of what they've been through and all the trauma that they're exposed to. So building on that, um, you, you know, as far as, you know, these folks have, they, they could appear with kind of a roughness or maybe even, you know, the Stockholm syndrome and resistance and, uh, and wanting to play it down perhaps, or just run or avoid, what kind of advice could you give family and people or fa- friends of the family or, or um, an extended family where they could maybe start that conversation, maybe not medical folks, maybe not clinical folks, but. Yeah. And I would say that be there, show up, let them know that they are always going to be there because time and time again, it's, it's very indicative of a domestic violence victim where they constantly go back and it's letting them know that I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for you at any point you can come and we'll take care of you. And we'll make sure that, you know, you are safe. And so it's not letting that promise melt away that they have somebody that's constantly going to show up and be there and answer that call, whether that be at midnight, two in the morning. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about sex trafficking uh, studies, uh, case studies with a victim specialist from the FBI at the Denver Division and DAR. And thank you for joining us on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. We also want to promote the website, thisishumantrafficking.com, which is put together by the Colorado Human Trafficking Council and its partners. You'll find a lot of helpful information there uh, and how to help, what to look for. Also, if you think that you know someone or perhaps you are someone that has suffered the effects of human trafficking, please know that there's a national human trafficking hotline, 888-373-7888. Thank you to our co-hosts, Toshi Yamaguchi and Al Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write at GetSyched on KUCRGmail.com. You can listen to past episodes, Let's Get Psyched, on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. To kick off the after um, content, I was disturbed. I mean, so much of this is disturbing, but I was disturbed by something that you had mentioned about the stay strong comment. Can you share about that? So that was a case that actually uh, was a sentencing hearing that I had last week on another trafficker. And uh, we, especially in the world of COVID, uh, we now have uh, options via WebEx to tune into um, court hearings. And in this particular one, we were doing a sentencing hearing of a pimp and uh, the victim who still had Stockholm syndrome and trauma bonding after um, her victimization from a couple of years ago uh, showed up on WebEx and asked the judge to speak. And 
basically directed her comments directly to her pimp and said, um, apologized for the prison sentence he was facing and was crying hysterically and indicated to him to stay strong in prison and that she was carrying the burden and the weight of feeling guilty about him going to prison. So it's, it's very indicative again of that relationship of that power and control that these traffickers have over their victims still years later. Wow. And, and, and so much of this just continues to feel topical to me. I think we're living in such a, an interesting and kind of horrifying time in the last five or 10 years where there's like, feels like there's this reactionary resurgence of rape culture. And I do want to read, um, this is from Vox.com misogynist influencer, Andrew Tate, uh, who once said he moved from the UK to Romania because quote, rape laws are more lenient there. Um, this person is, I think an enormous influencer is on trial for, um, sex trafficking and, of note, um, he used the technique. I think the, the media is referring to it as the lover boy technique that you were describing. Um, and, and so this is, I don't know, this is all over. And, and another thing that I'm finding really disturbing that I saw, I think in the news yesterday is that in Greece, um, a bunch of young men are protesting with like a free Andrew Tate kind of thing. Um, I, I don't suspect that we have many listeners who are among that group. And I don't know that we're changing anyone, anyone's mind, but um, I, I guess all I can say is uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we're, we're here with you and I'm really glad that you're doing this work. Yeah. And I will say to that when it comes to the amount of manipulation and that's a great example of how he has a hold of an audience where he is that that sense of manipulation is just um, so egregious. And I'll tell you, you mentioned the lover boy or that what I had called the finesse pimping there in a sense is kind of a spectrum of who these pimps are and the level of of what they do. And so you have your finesse or your um, boyfriending and pimps that use that promise of a better life, acceptance, um, being in love with them, um, when essentially we know that they're, they see them as a piece of property and then it will move. Or sometimes we have what we call gorilla pimps that inflict violence as a means of that control over their victims. And so I've had pimps who have put victims in animal cages, deprived them of food or water, um, beaten so severely that they're unrecognizable, had instruction to other victims to beat victims because they're not following the rules. And so there's this whole level of, again, it's domestic violence, but tenfold, if that makes sense. What uh, is the evidence? Maybe you say a little bit about evidence-based treatment for victims. Trauma-informed care, TFCDT, that kind of thing? Sure, sure. So 
a lot of times when we're working with our victims, I do a needs assessment. And so it's really looking at that, whether or not it's a dual diagnosis, because a lot of times substance abuse is a component of maintaining control over a victim. And so a lot of them get addicted or are introduced essentially to substances such as methamphetamines, um, they heroin. Um, I actually came from my first field office was in Alaska. And so working with the native population up there, they were addicted to alcohol. And so they would use any of these means to control them, which would try to keep them what we call in pocket um, is one of the terms where they would keep them um, under their control because they're started to be addicted to these substances. So it's thinking about assessing that substance abuse, that addiction, in addition to their mental health. And so because they've been sexually assaulted over and over and over again, multiple times a night, it's, you know, they have PTSD, they have all of the you know, levels of trauma that they've endured. And so what we found too is EMDR is uh, a great therapeutic um, approach uh, when working with these victims, but also just really looking at what would work for them. So we have often referred to art therapy, to equine therapy, animal assisted therapy, um, really um, engaging them with a mentor or a peer mentor that has been through or who is a survivor. And so it's really a, what we call complex trauma that we're assessing. And so with that is really engaging service providers to do wraparound services um, with just various approaches to be able to combat it. Is there some monitoring? I would imagine there's an, an enormous um, re-victimization risk and that the, when, when treatment gets uncomfortable, they might be tempted to go back to their Stockholm syndrome pimp or, or maybe they get re-victimized uh, by a new pimp. Is there, once they're in the system, is there some kind of increased level of monitoring for them outside of adjudication or what are the, what are the available kind of aftercare. Yeah. Yeah. No, that you really make a great point because a lot of our victims go through what we call stage of change model where they may be doing really well. And then all of a sudden they sabotage because a lot of our victims are often kind of in that fight or flight or freeze mode. And so oftentimes they want to go back to um, that flight where they go back and they run. That's why we see so many of our victims um, are runaways because they've ran multiple times because they're constantly engaging in what we call survival mode. And so with that, that's where they're not having the nightmares, the flashbacks, all of those trauma symptoms. And so they're constantly in survival mode, which is why they may go back, whether that be that Stockholm syndrome or they get recruited by another pimp because they're back in that survival mode. And so this is where it puts a lot of, you know, onus on us to be able to provide a really good needs assessment, to be able to identify service providers in the community. As I mentioned before, this takes a village to be able to work together to identify um, all of their needs, you know, whether that be housing or getting them on Medicaid or food stamps or um, getting them engaged with the equine therapy, but they need to get their GED. So education, looking at jobs, you're really starting from the ground up 
working kind of at Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you're engaging them with the basic and then kind of working your way up to trying to meet their goals. And so it's really having that support network. So we're really working a lot with a whole team of professionals to be able to surround themselves and do those wraparound services for these victims. I'm, I'm feeling particularly triggered by this episode tonight. Um, in, in, you know, our line of work, treating victims, also treating perpetrators, um, this conversation has been particularly difficult to um, participate in. I've noticed like my heart's pounding. Um, my muscles have been super tense and it's hard to focus listening um, and so I wanted to ask you, Anne, how you deal with the weight of your work, um, because what I do is I tend to try to like push it away and push it down. And then sometimes it will just like bubble up sometimes, um, like in watching uh, Blackbird and watching Blackbird right now. And yeah, it's really like it's also very triggering. Oh, that is a fantastic question. You know, I, when it comes to this level of work and it's, oh gosh, it's really difficult to answer because I, I am so passionate about human trafficking. And I think it is because it's a population of victims that are what some people deem throwaway kids. They're deemed, you know, no one will ever want to work with them. You know, they're the forgotten. And so for me, I want to advocate for those who don't have a voice. And so I can tell you, there's so many victims that I can think of uh, where I was screamed at, I was cussed at, um, and they fought hard to not want to be engaged in a case with us. And I would show up. I would constantly show up, whether that be to go visit them in foster care or their group home and let them know that they matter. And a lot of feedback I got was like, nobody did that for me. And nobody, I never felt like I mattered. And this case really helped empower me to have that voice that I never had whether that be they were a sex abusive victim at 10 by uncle or stepdad. They never had that voice before. And these cases are so complex. And so for me, it's really making sure that I do everything in my power to demonstrate that they matter. And so for self-care, um, I would say that it's taken years. I've been in the bureau now 15 years and it's establishing really good boundaries because you can get lost um, with, with these victims and, you know, crossing over boundaries. And so I've just had to really learn how to compartmentalize very, very good and making sure that, it, I mean, it's hard not to take your homework, you know, your work home with you. I mean, all of you who work with adolescents and children, I can imagine all of the horror stories that you've had to work with and what you see. And so it, it's very challenging to be able to compartmentalize and not take it home with you. Maybe we can um, wrap things up tonight. And thank you so much. This is so much good information. And thank you for, it sounds like you're, you're 
open to coming coming back again. We can keep pursuing some of these these this really important information and educating folks. Absolutely. Happy to have. Thank you so much for having me. This really means a lot. Absolutely. I, I want to also just say that um, and this is corny, which is fine. Um, I just got I think a lot of what I want to do with patients who are questioning the meaning of life and, and are suicidal is, is instill meaning in terms of potential careers they could go into and ways that one can be a hero. And I think like a lot of times we point to um, the healthcare providers because a lot of our patients kind of end up mentoring other patients in the psych hospital or, or elsewhere. And, and we, we kind of observe that. Um, I just, it's really occurred to me, I'm kind of getting this image of your career and your, your work. And I think that's just such a kind of like pithy definition of hero. And I want to give you gratitude for that. And I also want to just kind of like, as an idea for the um, doctors and, and psychologists and other mental health people out there, like this is something, this is a career we can talk to people about that um, probably needs a lot more people. No, I appreciate that. And I got to tell you, I mean, what you had said about people seeking careers after this, I've had some of our survivors who have kept in touch and they've gone to college and have pursued becoming social workers or victim advocates wow. or even legal yes. advocates. So it's kind of cool right now. I have one who is now a legal advocate for domestic violence survivors. And so she and I are now seeing each other at conferences. And we're like, this is the coolest thing ever. Wow. So it's kind of neat because I had her case about 10 years ago and it went to trial and she testified and she was in a group home and you know, and now she's overcome and graduated and she's a legal advocate um, being a voice for these victims. So it's it's really incredible to see uh, that survivor uh, impacting them in these cases. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. This concludes the extended version of Let's Get Psyched.